What's up, everyone? We're here on the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh, and here I'm Pat. And we are so excited to be with Rachel Cole and Chelsea Petronco today. Hello. Hi. The co-founders of Vernissage Art Advisory. I said that correctly? Yes. Yes. Amazing. Alrighty. So the way we're going to do this, since we have two founders with us, uh, we're going to start off with Rachel and hear a little bit about her backstory and her upbringing and her journey. And then we'll move on to Chelsea. And Chelsea, if you have anything to say while Rachel's talking... There's no rules in this in this podcast. All right, so, good. Rachel, where did you grow up? I grew up in the city of Chicago. Okay. The windy city. The windy city. What makes it so windy? Well, there's many theories. It okay. is actually windy. It's cold. It's on Lake Michigan. Also, I guess there is some corruption with politicians. We mm. won't get into that, but they're blowing Not yet, no. wind up everyone's butts or whatever. <laughs> so we confirmed it's windy. So at least it's windy yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, what were you, I guess, what were you like as a kid? Like, what did you like doing? Um, weirdly enough, I was very creative and I'm not very creative now. I'm very much more in the business mindset of things. As a child, I was an only child. My parents were both artists in their own respect. My mother was a fashion designer. My father was a musician by night, um, financial hedge fund manager by day. And um, I grew up, I was really into music, really into art. And, you know, that was kind of it. As an easygoing kid. <laughs> Growing up with two parents who were artists, were you, I think you said that you were creative, but how did you exercise that creative muscle when you were a child? How did I exercise that? Um, I think that I was just always watching what they were doing and I would, you know, sort of, I had this output of, I was very into computers and creating things on computers and I was always drawing, I was always reading, I was always, you know, had this direction that was kind of not necessarily like other kids. You know, a lot of kids I grew up with, their parents were doctors or lawyers and, you know, my weren't. So I was able to have this sort of flexibility and freedom to creatively express myself in any way I wanted. And did you think this would like end up being like your career one day or was it just kind of no, like, I, I like having fun doing this? Yeah. Not at all. So even though I was very creative as a child, um, and my parents always joke about this because I was painting, I was doing all of these things. When I went to school, I was, you know, really academic. I went and started studying psychology right away. Clinical psychology, it's very gung-ho that I would be like a criminal forensic psychologist. I would work in a psych ward, you name it. That was my destiny. Mm-hmm. And then which is really funny looking back. And then like CSI, I've seen every episode 20 times. Um, And then, you know, when I went to school, I was... And you went to University of Michigan? Michigan, yes, in Ann Arbor. Um, And the reason why I got into art was actually kind of funny. I thought I was going to study psychology and film. You know, I was, you know, weaning myself off of this like heavy psychiatric, you know, direction into more of a creative and psychology route. And I was interested in film. And I was interested in this because it's actually kind of funny thinking about it. My parents got divorced, and when I would spend time with my father, every weekend I was with him, we would watch every classic movie. Hitchcock, you know, like, from the beginning. And that was sort of what defined my love for movies, or mostly all these sort of artistic creations as being depicted through film. And I walked into my first film class in Ann Arbor, I'll never forget this, and it was in a huge auditorium. I just did not like it. I was like, I don't know why I'm not clicking with this. I didn't necessarily, I thought I would love it, basically, and I was really disappointed I didn't. And there's these four atriums in Angel Hall, I think, and I went directly across the hall, and it was a 19th century French painting class by Howard Lay. 
And that's actually what I ended up majoring in. That's what I... 19th century art? French painting. Specifically. Oh, wow. like that super is like specific. <laughs> yeah. Like wow. super, super specific. Yeah. Um, wandered in the class, changed the class right there. I think I changed my major right then. I was just yeah. obsessed. It's like, crazy because I, I can sense the passion that you have yeah. for this. It's <laughs> insane. Saw, yeah, 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 I can see it. And it's, it's nuts because like, you know, you always think like, you know, something that's your passion might be your like educational like calling and then you, you start taking classes and you're like, whoa, like I like the... I like the, the side that I'm exposed to and like just the creators, you know, Completely. but when it starts, you start learning about it, it's kind of like, uh, I don't want to like just learn about it that I way. Know. It's kind of, it kind of sucks the fun out of it, right? It did. Yeah. But then, you know, vice versa, I think there's such a wonderful thing to be said about art history because you're learning about the history of a country. You're learning about its development. You're learning about the first French revolution coinciding with paintings by Jacques-Louis David at the time. You know, it's like very just enthralling and you're seeing changes in artistic expression you're seeing movements in art coinciding with movements mm -hmm. in politics and mm -hmm. social aspects it was incredible and I think um that's really what put me on that track and then you know taking really in-depth courses about art history and I went and studied abroad in Paris and that just sealed the deal so I decided a double major I still kept the psychology for some reason mm -hmm. and then I did um art history and I liked also the dynamic so, for example, a lot of artists during that time, you know, there's, um, for example, Gauguin, who ran off to Britney. There is um, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, who cut off his ear. So I, know, I know that name. Yeah. <laughs> the other one, I have no idea, yeah. Um, you know, there is a lot of artists that have this psychological torment or whatever it might be that really, truly defines their work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even now relearning about artists or deep diving into theory, learning about contemporary artists, psychology informs it so much. So, Rachel, I'm curious. So, when you're a student in college studying art, art history, traveling, you know, to Paris, at any given moment, are you thinking, okay, like this is awesome, this is fun, but you know, is this going to be something that is going to become my career? Like, how am I going to make money off of this? Like, I was a political <laughs> science major, and like, no one becomes like a political scientist and makes money. Like, they probably go to law school, which is what I did. Yeah. But you know. <laughs> Are you thinking about the next steps? Or are you just in the moment enjoying learning about this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate. My parents didn't put any pressure on me to, you know, graduate with a job lined up, with whatever it might be. They really wanted me to, you know, really figure out what I was really interested in. And they knew I would figure it out, whatever it might be. So I wasn't really thinking about the career path, especially because when you're learning art history, no one's sitting you down and saying, you know, here's what an auction house is. Here's what a gallery is. Here's what a museum is. Here's how much you're going to get paid at all of them. And no one's telling you this. No. It's not lined up in front of you like it might be at a business school. Mm -hmm. So um, I wasn't thinking about it at all. But there was a set path within the art history. You know, they'll send out, you can intern at, you know, the Met. You can intern at these museums. You yep. can... So you sort of get an idea of what's coming, but you have yeah. no idea. <laughs> and, and did you like see yourself in that doing that those things? Like you know, and, and I don't know if you ended up doing it, but like yeah. did you and see yourself having a job within art history? Was or was it more something you just yeah. enjoyed learning? No, I definitely thought I would have a job, especially because when I was double majoring one summer, I interned doing um, psychology. Like I was at New York State Psychiatric. I was like door-to-door -door in the Bronx, and after that, I was like, yeah, I'm not, that's not my path. Um, it was incredible. I learned a lot, but that was terrifying, honestly. So I think what ended up happening was I had my first um, internship, and I really wanted to continue my education. So I, and I still say this, I really, you know, want to get my master's. I want to get my PhD. I wanted to teach. I didn't want to write. I didn't want to do anything except teach 
at a university or, you know, just have this um, highly academic, you know, cross-section between art history and psychology. Because I took a class that was about self-portraiture and it talked a lot about psychology. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if I could just teach this for the rest of my life? Um, didn't do either of those. But I worked at a museum in the education department, which was enough for me. This was the Guggenheim or? Yes. So, so I, when I graduated, I interned at the Guggenheim. And you knew at that moment, like, this is what I want to be doing? I did. Um, I definitely knew I wanted to be in art. Um, there was a very contemporary exhibition on view while I was working there called Storylines. And that had, it's kind of funny looking back, artists that we know a lot about now, but at the time I knew nothing about. And I was always drawn to the Tannhauser collection, which was 19th century French painting. So I knew I wanted to be involved and, you know, learn about that in some respect. But uh, the museum was... It was interesting. I loved being in education. It was a little slow pace for what I wanted to be doing, but um, it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And before we delve into how you and Chelsea met, Chelsea, I wanted to kind of turn to you and ask you kind of your backstory. Where are you from and how was the early days of your life? Yeah, so I had a very different upbringing from Rachel. I grew up in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, which mm -hmm. is outside of Pittsburgh, on the border of West Virginia and Ohio, mm -hmm. so very Midwest. Yeah. And um, I grew up with uh, a little brother. I have two stepbrothers, two half-brothers, so I was kind of always surrounded like by boys. Big family. Big family, yeah. yeah. Very much a tomboy. Um, spent a lot of time outside, like in the woods. And I, um, I, got, I started modeling quite early. So I was 15 and I started modeling and I uh, was on my first airplane to Japan mm -hmm. and I got there and I was just so amazed by how everything was so new to me. I'd never seen anything like it. It was In beyond... what sense like new? Yeah. So in the sense of, first of all, like the way that people sounded, acted, looked, I was very different from everybody else. Because even though we think of like these big cities as being cosmopolitan, I think because there's so many people there that even whenever you send some foreigners mm -hmm. there, they just don't make like even a drop in the pan for. And at that time, had you there. been outside of like your where you grew up, like in even like big cities in the U.S., or was this kind of like your first big city experience? I mean, it was kind of my first big city experience. I think that I'd been to like it. Truly, it was my first big city experience. Yeah. And you were fifteen, so you're like you're, you're really young. And like, were you like were you alone? Like like, or was your family with you? Or like, how did how was that? Because you had to. I mean, I'm you know as I'm, you said, you were a tomboy when growing up. So I'm sure like you kind of figured things out on your own too. But I don't know how was that like. Yeah, good question. So my uh, mom, she was obviously terrified, but it was a good opportunity for me. So she didn't want me to lose it. Mm -hmm. So she rearranged her life so that she could go with me. So she came over to Japan. So and she was kind of like your manager or momager. <laughs> not no, really. no, not no. really. Like uh, the Japanese market, they're amazing okay. for models because it is so different from what we're used to that they take really great care of you. So you have a translator to right. talk for you. You have a driver and everything is kind of set up. They draw you. If you do have to go somewhere by yourself, they draw you a map. So mm -hmm. you can so get you feel from, safe and like. Yeah, you feel totally safe. So my mom came over with me, and mm -hmm. she was planning to stay for – my contract was two months. She was planning on staying for the entire two months. But after two weeks, she said, you know what? This place is so safe. I'll go back home. Yeah. I'll resume my life, and you do your thing And were you, like, tripping out, like, at 15 years old, like, being alone in Japan where you don't speak the language, I assume, and, like, you don't really know that many people? 
Absolutely. Yeah. It was crazy. It It is good in the way that it's set up in a way where you live with other models. Mm-hmm. And so I had a girl that was two years older than me and she was from Norway. And so she kind of like taught me everything and she would show me like, oh, this is where you should go to the grocery store and this is where you should eat because she'd been there before I got there. And then before she got there, somebody else taught her that. So it really is like a community of everybody helping each other out to, you know, kind of wing it. Yeah. And, and this is something you kind of fell into, right? Like it wasn't like a plan, the plan, like oh, you, no, it just absolutely. kind of happened. And so, I mean, that was like your first experience. Like, did you think that that was going to lead to like a modeling career or was it kind of just like, I'll do this for now and we'll see what happens. Like what was kind of going through your life or your mind at that time? I think because I started so young and it uh, it went well that I didn't think about any other plan besides that. That kind of was the plan. I, I had this opportunity. I was going to seize it and continue on. So I ended up going back and forth to Japan for over two years because the market really worked for me. And then after that, I went on and I moved to Miami. I based myself in Miami and I would spend the winters there and in the summers I would go to Europe. And during the summer, are you in high school? So I, I'm like, I'm yeah, like I feel so, like we yeah. skip over like <laughs> yeah, 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 15 yeah. years old, constantly going to Japan. <laughs> uh, I mean, sounds great, no school, but I mean, what was that situation like? Yeah. So the first time I went, I finished my finals early and then I high, went. This high school? I, yeah, okay. high school. And then I would do it around school. So I finished oh. my senior year like normal. I didn't skip any school for that. And then immediately after I graduated, that's whenever I started spending extensive amount of time there. Uh, so did you go to college? I did, but not until much later. Okay. So I think I started college when I was 22. Oh, wow. Why did you even decide to go to college? I decided – I felt like I was never going to get to a point where I didn't have to – uh, where I never thought that I was going to get to a level where life would be easy. Mm. I thought that it was always going to be very like scrappy and like, uh, not scrappy. That's not the word, but like, um, challenging. Yeah. Like a lot of competition and a Mm. lot of like waiting and you you wanted something like to set yourself apart from like the crowd as far as like learning, being like, I don't know, maybe like an expert in something, but like knowing a lot about something. Like, yeah. it, I guess, well, let me ask you, like, why did, what, why did you, what did you study and why did you study that in college? Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I, I studied economics in mm-hmm. college and I loved it. I like business and I like numbers and I like things of that nature. So I went to college for a while and I, um, that was fine. Mm-hmm. But then after a couple of years, I was like, wait, I kind of miss the travel. I miss all of the different cultures. Because like all of those different cultures is what I really, really enjoyed about modeling. It wasn't the modeling itself that was like drawing to me. It yeah. was more like being in places where I was unfamiliar and then soaking all of that up and trying to learn why people are the way that they are. And yeah. and were you modeling throughout the time, like while you're in college or did you completely put that on like hold? I was like slightly modeling. I, I went to college in Pittsburgh, so I was modeling in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. which wasn't very demanding. Yeah. So I could do both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like you realized that you like really enjoyed that lifestyle, right? And like, and so what did you end up doing like after college? So after college, I went back to modeling. Mm-hmm. I went back to that and I did that for a few more years. And then that's what brought me to LA. Mm-hmm. And um, like a modeling opportunity modeling opportunity yeah Yeah. so one thing that i kind of draw from both of you like 
is the fact that while you were in college, you were still doing the things that you were enjoying. And it wasn't really a mindset focused on career. I think a lot of times the founders that we talk to and just even our surroundings, college is always about like, what's the next step? Like, what, when, what are we going to do to make money? You know, yeah. I, I guess both of you can answer this question. Why, why wasn't it that at the forefront of your like mind? Why was passion overpowering your, you know, financial ventures or things that would eventually make you money? What do you, why do you think that is? I mean, I think I can speak for both of us and that we were really lucky that our parents knew that we would figure it out. Um, you know, Chelsea was flown across the world and figured it out. Um, and I, you know, my parents always figured that I have to be doing something for the rest of my life that I'm really going to love. I'm sure it's, you know, I'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make money. We'll pay the bills. Um, but that's what's most important. Yeah, so I don't. They both did. I don't think there's anything traditional about either of us. Yeah. We just... No, I mean, definitely, <laughs> no. definitely not. No. Which is why I think it makes for a great story yeah. is because, and perhaps a lot of people will relate to this because it's likely that, especially in this day and age, they're in your shoes. Like, you know, perhaps in this generation, it's more about, you know, go pursue your, per, uh, go pursue your passion, which is tough. We always talk about it. But the fact that you'll eventually get to that point, you'll eventually figure it out. And the one thing that is kind of interesting to me is I look at 50, 60 year olds and I'm like, they figured it out. They're still living. Like, you know, we're young, like we're still in our twenties. Like we'll eventually figure it out. Like, you know, folks that are in their twenties, thirties is still like, there is a lot of time to figure it out. And now I'm curious, Chelsea, you talked about your move to LA. When did that happen? Like, give me like a timeline. I moved to LA in 2011. Okay. So eight years ago at this point. Yeah. And what were you going to do here? I moved here to model. So that's what I was doing. And then I did that for about three, year, three years. Within that time, I met a guy and I married him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so once we got married after that, that's whenever I kind of stopped working. And um, it didn't work out, so we got divorced. And then whenever we got divorced, that's when I said to myself, okay, I need to start a new career. What mm-hmm. am I really, really mm-hmm. passionate about? Mm-hmm. And I thought really hard about it and I consulted with a lot of my friends and that's whenever I decided that I didn't know how I wanted to work within art, but I knew that I wanted to work within art. Why art? What Why about art? It? Yeah, because whenever I was traveling to all of the countries that I went to, in my free time, I would always wind up at the museum. I would always be at galleries. I would always find myself drawn to like public art. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Japan, there was a uh, Louis Bourgeois spider sculpture. And I would make that my meeting spot. Whenever I wanted to meet with my friends, we would always meet there. Mm-hmm. And art was really what made me happy. And it was just like a natural attraction to art? Or was there anything like in particular, like growing up that you think like this stems from? It just happened? It just happened. It was a natural attraction. Absolutely. Um, I didn't grow up going to museums or anything like that. So it wasn't until I started going into the bigger cities by myself that I really, really got drawn to it. Yeah. And then I also was starting to meet people that collected art. And I found that fascinating. I found it really, really cool how someone could have possession of a piece of history right and you know take care of it for as long as they could until for whatever reason they stopped taking care of it Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah it's crazy i mean art is one of those things i mean obviously you, you guys can speak more about it but it's like you can have a natural attraction to just like the way it looks but then when you start learning more about the backstory of not even just one piece but like art in general then you have this like whole different appreciation for it and um you know you learn things that you just might not know just like looking at it like people always go like 
why does this art piece cost like two million dollars? Well, like you don't know the backstory, like for why, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think that's interesting. But like, kind of, kind of diving into like you, how you guys met. Um, so you're in LA. Were you, Rachel? You were in LA as well at that time. Okay. So what brought you to LA, and how did you two meet? Um. Well, I came to LA in 2016. Yeah, and like December 2015, early 2016. Um, I actually moved for my boyfriend. It worked out. We're still together. So <laughs> everyone always asks that. Um, and, you know, I was living in New York City. I actually worked at Christie's right after the Guggenheim, and that just didn't work out for, for a few reasons, family reasons. It was, you know, just whatever happened. Were you doing like curate, like you were a curator or like what no. was your role? So Christie's Auction House, I was a research assistant. Mm. I, was, I had a grad st- um, student position, even though I wasn't a grad student. So we were doing research and I was in American Paintings, which is pre-war. So it's kind mm. of a really random department for someone of my background. Yeah. So I was um, a little bit out of my element. Um, and I, I liked Christie's a lot, but it just wasn't the right fit. And I had some personal matters I had to attend to. So I ended up moving back to Chicago for a couple months, came to L.A., canceled my return flight, moved here with the job at the gallery where we actually met. So um, we met, I started in January, Chelsea started in March at this gallery in West Hollywood that no longer exists. What was it called? It was called DeRay Gallery. Okay. Yeah. And what was your role and what was your role, Chelsea? When we started? Oh, God. Um, I was manager. I came on as manager. And that was my first job in art, so I was an intern. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I assume you, Chelsea, I assume you enjoyed it. Oh my God, I loved it. I loved it so much. Whenever I came on, it was myself, Rachel, and then there was another guy there. And he didn't, yeah, he didn't stay on too much longer. And then it was just the two of us. But I really, really liked it. Um, And then I really liked working together too. Like we worked really well together. Yeah. Yeah. And so what what, what was your kind of like day-to-day like for both of you? Like what were you doing? Oh at the gallery. Putting out fires. Everything. everything. <laughs> Literally everything. everything. So we, there was someone who owned the gallery, yeah. and then there was the director who we were talking about who left shortly after we both started. And then, so then I think I became director and Chelsea mm. became manager. And <laughs> I can't yeah. stress this enough. <laughs> quick, this was like quick, uh, yeah, really quick. quick, quick for, and it was really our first job in, like first real jobs in the art world too. And um, so we did everything. You mm. name it. Artist liaison. So we would coordinate with the artists. We'd coordinate with the sellers. We'd coordinate with like insurance we coordinate with shipping we would do we you would name book it. ballet book ba- like yeah. it was basically your gallery but like <laughs> it, it could have very well been your gallery oh it, yeah, yeah pretty it, much yeah, yeah. like our our boss had another yeah. company that was really really successful so this was his like Sorry. passion project and he yeah. just gave us the keys and was like you know trusted us which was really nice literally good because yeah. we learned so much so we would exhibit at art fairs which is what we go to all the time now which is kind of funny so we learned a lot about the art fairs we learned a lot about um throwing an event we would throw an event every four to Four or six weeks, mm-hmm. and this was big events. Like mm-hmm. the Kardashians came to one before we came. Clint Eastwood was at like two of our. Like it was just they were really crazy big events with step and repeats with paparazzi with, you know, not too many art sales sometimes. But <laughs> and in between the big events, we would also have smaller events come yeah. and we would do charity events all the time. So sometimes we were doing an event a week. Like mm-hmm. it was it was a lot. All hands yeah. on deck. So yeah. I guess what was the biggest like takeaway for each of you from working there? Like, what is the biggest thing you learned? We learned how to run a gallery. Yeah. We learned the art business. But that art business is very different than the art business we're involved in now. That was more of a commercial gallery. So the price points were a little bit lower. Um, You know, the artists were a little bit different than the artists that that the galleries are working with now. So it was – we just learned a lot about how that art world works. 
I'm curious, how fast did you two become friends? Instantly. No, actually, we didn't. It's we were pinned against each other real quick. Yeah. We, we actually were. We were, it, we were set up to not like each other. Really? Like, yeah. the bosses would be like, she's taking your job. She's taking why, so, why do you think that is? Just because, like, so you can, like, I don't know, like, focus on your own areas of the no, gallery? No, we, we both did everything. I don't really know why that. I think it was more yeah. of, like, Insecurity if we became oh, okay. close, yes. then we would break apart, Got which it. we eventually did. did. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I ended up doing. They, I think <laughs> he knew. I mean, and the thing is, without them even knowing it, like, our skills complement each other so well mm -hmm. that it was like, you know, bound to be a much better partnership, mm -hmm. but in a different venue. So we were there for about a year and a half and the gallery owner um, wanted to change it into a photography gallery because that's what it was actually pretty strong at, but there was a combination of other different mediums of art, but he wanted to segue into a photography gallery and neither of us studied photography, neither of us knew anything about photography. And we, you know, had also at the same time been hearing from other clients that said, you know, I love this work, but you know, I'm more interested in a Keith Haring drawing or an Andy Warhol print. Is that something that you can find for me? So at the same time, we were getting this other information about what other people slash our clients were really wanting. And it was just kind of the perfect time to split. And this is what, 2018? 2017. 2017. This okay. was like summer, which is always the worst time of year for art. So summer's always dead. Yeah. Um, and so it was, yeah, July 2017. Yeah, why is it dead during summertime? There's I have no, no idea. <laughs> there's no auctions. There's no um, fairs. All the people buying art are traveling to Europe. Yeah, everyone's gone. Everyone's gone. Yeah. Holiday. And so, and so, like, the gallery was changing, you guys weren't about it, and you saw an opportunity, and what was that opportunity again? Like, kind of hone in on what that was. Like, what did you see that you were like, there's something here? Private art sales. Private art sales. Yeah. We, because for both of our networks, we knew a lot of people that were looking for art, and it wasn't the art that we were selling at the time. Got it. So whenever the opportunity for us to move on came about, we jumped at the chance because we thought that we really could make a go of it, make a great thing happen, and the timing was just perfect. Yeah, and and what was what was it like at the time, like a couple of years ago, in in this space? Like, were there a lot of people doing that, or was it kind of like a gap that you saw that you're like, wow, we should we should do this? Um, no, there were quite a few people doing it. I mean, it it, but the thing is, it doesn't matter how many people are doing it because it's your clients and right. what your clients are looking for. So I think that. Um, at the time, there were a lot of galleries that were closing, actually, thinking back on it. Mm -hmm. And the gallery we were at ended up closing down. Um, so I think that was more of like a trend that we noticed. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I wouldn't. I don't know. Was it scary to say, okay, we're going to leave this place? We haven't started our own business before. I assume you might correct on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and just jump right in, you know, forfeit salary, forfeit you know, perhaps, you know, an easier livelihood at that moment and say, we're just going to do this on our own. What was going through your mind? Absolutely. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Still is. Still is. But run, um. me through, run me through that moment. Like, run me through that moment where you guys are talking to each other. Or, I mean, however it worked out where you're like, okay, let's leave and do our own thing. I think we sort of didn't really have another choice. Um, that was more of I think what drove both of us, we saw, hey, we're, we work really, really well together. We don't want to go into photography. We don't want to be in a gallery space anymore. Um, there's a lot of missed opportunity. Let's just try it out and see what happens. 
And when we did, we didn't actually really do that many private art sales. We did a lot of events mm -hmm. because that's what we were really good at. So like we could throw an art gallery party, like no one's business. And that's what people knew us for also. So for like being hired for things, we were getting people asking us to have events for them left and right, like all the time. We didn't have enough time to do the events. So we really, really spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time <laughs> on that in the beginning. And so did you have to like, I mean, you already had the clientele pretty much when you were starting? I mean, sort some, of. it was a different clientele than that was at the gallery, but yeah. um, in terms of like, it was people from our normal lives. People already knew yeah. like what you were doing and what you would, what you were capable of doing. Or was it like, well, I guess my, it's leading to my question of like, was it, was it a challenge to get it started? And I guess before we do, like, can you <laughs> explain to us what Vernissage Art Advisory is like at the core of it? Like, what do you, what did you guys, what did, yeah. what, you saw the opportunity, what did you start? Oh, well, it's funny yeah. because we, we just talked about this. Every yeah. quarter that we've been in business, we've changed and improved. Ch changed so it, yeah. when we started, I think we were like a concierge art. Oh, yeah, we were marketing ourselves as an arts concierge <laughs> company. So, so it was like, you buy it, that? we find someone to Got like it. bring it to you, we find someone to put it Got on it. your wall. Got I think it. we put it on, we were installers at one point. Like, we did everything to like make it the easiest possible scenario mm -hmm. for our clients to buy art. Yeah. And this was more expensive art, this was more blue chip art, this was um, just a different caliber of art mm -hmm. altogether. Mm -hmm. So um, that's no. how we started. And then what did it become? Quarter two? Yeah. Quarter two. So quarter one, we did a lot of events, mm. a lot of parties. And we realized really quickly that um, we were running ourselves, like we were just running ourselves into the ground. We were exhausted all the time. We weren't making any money because what we thought was, you know, we would, the artists would pay a small amount to rent, you know, rent or mm -hmm. whatever, do the show. We'd do all the sales and, and, you know, there weren't any sales. Most of the events we did in the first quarter were charity events. Mm. That's true. So we weren't even like taking a commission on sales at all. So it was maybe quarter two, we started doing more artist artists, yeah. artist events. So we would find a venue for them and then we would uh, host the exhibition and get people to come and, you know, sell art that way. And we were pretty, yeah, we were pretty focused on finding art for people and then what ended up happening in quarter two. So this is like January of 2018. Mm -hmm. A lot of people then started coming to us and they said, I have things to sell. Mm -hmm. Can you help me sell? And then we were like, oh, yeah. So we ended up being able to sell a lot of works for people. Um, on the secondary market, which is um, so in art, there's a primary market, which is galleries. You know, you're you're buying it; it's never been purchased before. Secondary market, it's already been purchased. Yeah, that's what auction is. That's what you know. A lot of the private sales we were doing. Mm -hmm. so obviously, you're not buying a Keith Haring primary. Yeah, and does the value normally like go up in the secondary market? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, by a lot. So, um, so that's what we were doing a lot of, and that segued into a lot of private sales. Yeah, like that's really whenever we started hit a rhythm and everything started to make sense for us and we didn't feel like we were as frantic anymore. Mm -hmm. Like it felt right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, kind of going back, what does vernissage mean or why that, how did that oh. name, how did that name even <laughs> come that, to be? Oh, it was an Ch accident. Chelsea seems excited about this. <laughs> it does because this ties right back to those French paintings. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. Um, vernissage means the varnishing. So it's like when the artist would come the day before an exhibition. So like in the 19th century, um, in England, in, in Paris, you know, they would have um, these exhibitions called, you know, in Paris it was a salon. And the artists would come and varnish their paintings, mm -hmm. the final layer to seal it all in, to protect it. Mm -hmm. And during that time, you know, the VIPs, the honestly, the buyers, um, the major dealers, the press, they would all come and have the first look, mm -hmm. like the very, very exclusive first look, first taste of what, this artist's, you know, next body of work will be. And so that's what we provide is like the secret first look, very mm -hmm. exclusive. Mm -hmm. Was it easy to come up with a name? 
that was our second <laughs> name actually. Our first name didn't go so well. <laughs> it, didn't. it was kind of a mistake that we landed on this name, but it was worth it. Was it. such a happy mistake. It was a happy mistake. Mm-hmm. So um, there were a couple of iterations when you first started, and then you realized like the, the business opportunity was people were coming to you and say like, "Hey, you know, we, I need help selling selling." A lot of referrals. Uh, yeah. So is that what you've been doing since? Is that what like the Q three and Q four? That was <laughs> that was Q. Um, yeah, like into twenty seventeen up until like May, we started doing. We were doing a lot of secondary markets. So we would sell a lot of work for people, and then they would refer to their friends. And then through that, we started working with galleries that had works on the secondary market because that happens and that should happen. You should bring work back to the gallery so they have control of it. Um, and we started working with the galleries and then the opportunity came where we were presented with an opportunity to sell to one of our bigger clients, a big secondary market piece. Um, and then that segued into him being offered primary market. Mm. So primary market is really difficult to have access to at the museum quality level. Yeah. So I think what a lot of people don't know is like if you had a checkbook and you walked into a major gallery and you were like, I want that painting here's a blank check, they wouldn't accept it. You have to have museum ties. You have to have a a very prestigious collection. You have to have, you know, the sort of home where this work can go and live and prosper because the galleries and the dealers in the galleries really, really care about where these artists go. That's Mm. their job. So they don't just sell to anyone to pay the rent, which is what we were doing at the old gallery. So run me through. So let's say I'm a potential client of your business. Like how does that quote-unquote transaction look like you know how am I getting in touch with you guys I mean what how are you guys involved in the process like if somebody's is somebody coming to you guys that's a lot that's a big question um we have a lot of referrals so yeah so people usually get in touch with us through like Instagram through email um word of mouth Mm -hmm. a lot of things Mm -hmm. um you know especially press that's been you know come out recently um about what we've done with collections so that's what we do now so we'll jump ahead to Q current. Yeah, Q current. Yeah. <laughs> Q current. We um right now our job is to shape out these, you know, round out these collections. So we for work individuals. For individuals, but they're on the level of these will become private museums or foundations or it. public institutions for people all around the world. So it's not like me coming to you. No, unless... no, no, no. You definitely can, but that's what our main mm-hmm. thing is: is that collections come to us and they say, "Hey, I have." You know, what, what am I missing? What do you recommend? And then we fill it out for them. And these mm-hmm. are international collections. And then we have a lot of clients based in L.A., in New York, in, you know, in London, in Paris, or whatever it might be that say, all right, I'm thinking about starting to collect. What do you recommend at this price point? Or, you know, I'm thinking of selling something to buy something newer. What do you recommend? Either way. How do I sell? How mm-hmm. do I buy? Mm-hmm. And Rachel, what's your role versus Chelsea's role in Vernissage? Well, right now it is, I do all the, like the sales. So in terms of like finalizing transactions with those sorts of, you know, logistics, whether it be liaising with the seller, which is usually a gallery right now, or, and then with the buyer. So I'm the one that coordinates all of that and make sure that that all goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. And then Chelsea does like literally every, every other thing. <laughs> and, yeah, then, and, then, <laughs> and then once like the sale is confirmed verbally, the money has gone through, then that's kind of whenever I take care of all of the details that come after that. Cause there's mm-hmm. a lot of details with getting it to the collector making sure that it's insured and stored properly. Um, and kind of keeping everybody happy also. Like yeah. making sure that everybody feels taken care of and uh, heard all the time. She's very good at that. 
<laughs> um, do you see Vernissage being like a like a like a continuously evolving company with like just I can imagine like the art market. There's always different opportunities that pop up. Um, or is it something that you, I don't know if it's like current uh, what you're doing now that you end up just kind of focusing on and being that or is it something that you're constantly trying to evolve it and cater to what's happening in the market well we love Q current yeah yeah but I think that we're open because it you know a year ago we didn't know that we would be doing what we're doing right. today at yeah. all like this took us by surprise and it just happened to evolve into this so we think that it could absolutely evolve into something else but right now we're quite busy and we're very happy yeah. and um we're really glad to be taking care of our clients in the way that we are. As far as your personal opinions, um, Chelsea, we'll start with you. Why do you think the arts matter in culture, in society, and what impact does it have? Yeah, absolutely. So art matters to society because it really is a representation of where people are at that moment in time when the artwork is made. So it shows how people are feeling politically, how they're feeling socially, and um, maybe what they are up against mm -hmm. or pushing back on. So, yeah. Like it tells a story, like when you look at like an art piece from like this, you know, like this 17th century, like you, you can tell like what was happening at the time, like through that, through that art. And now like culture these days, I mean, the digital evolution and all that stuff. But um, I think that's kind of what you're getting at or. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, artwork was actually a perfect vi visual representation of what was going on. So now it's a little bit harder to dissect it because artwork is a lot more abstracted and conceptual. So you kind of have to learn about artwork before you can look at something and understand what it means. Mm -hmm. And I think that the internet and Instagram, as you said, is really helping with that because it's making people more interested in. For sure. And the reason I asked this question or the reason I was like, you know, interested to even sit down with you guys is because I consider art like truffle. It's one of those things that you don't really like until you're older and you don't appreciate it until you're older, at least for me. Uh, I think a lot of folks right. that, um, you know, are like you two recognize the importance of art earlier on the yes. arts in general, not just art. I didn't, for example, I mean, I went to law school, like it's not artistic whatsoever, but you start appreciating art and its involvement in your life. The more you experience life, in my opinion. So, I guess, Rachel, asking you the same question, why do you think that is? I mean, I, you probably disagree with me on that. Um, but And if you do, like, I'd love to hear why. Why it's like an, an acquired taste. Yeah, you? perhaps. Um, or, as, or as you experience more in life, it becomes something you appreciate more. I mean, I think so. Even going back to Chalice's upbringing, she only had that, you know, the... Um, yeah, yeah I really wasn't I was, like exposed to art until mm -hmm. much later. Mm -hmm. But because she was traveling and because she would like, you know, yeah. find these places and she was able to see the value, of, you know, and just experience art in these different places. That was, mm -hmm. I think, what was, you know, what set it apart. But I'm not really sure just because like we eat 
breathe, sleep, mm -hmm. art 24 seven. So yeah. imagining a life without that is very difficult. And right. now everyone around us is like sort of sucked into this like trap of they now eat, hear everything that we talk about art and they know a lot yeah. because we do, but they wouldn't have before. Yeah. And we can argue that art is literally everywhere and, and everywhere you go, you, you see something that's art. It doesn't have to be like a painting or anything like that. I mean, art could be like just a I don't know, graffiti on a wall, yeah, right? And so okay. I guess what would you tell people or like listeners like as far as um, kind of how to, I guess, appreciate it more? Like what should they yes. lo be look? how should they be looking at, I guess, the world when they're like out and about and seeing art everywhere? Well, I think um, going to museums. I'm the biggest advocate for museums, obviously. I think going to these you know, these tours that I used to help create, they were these specialized tours and their purpose was to bring people in. So for example, there was one that was like, and we've actually done some of these tours where it's like very thematic, very like specific to the group you're bringing around. So if mm -hmm. it's children, you're going to point out like colors versus like Animals. theoretical <laughs> concepts, you know, like, mm -hmm. and you know, we led tours at um, this art fair called the Armory last year. And we had, we're leading through a group of tech people and we obviously brought them to the digital art. We weren't bringing them to like the highly abstracted, really difficult to understand artworks. But I think that, you know, we sometimes run into a problem with a lot of our clients are in finance or they don't necessarily, or they like to put a dollar sign on the art and that's kind of it. But I think, you know, that is part of why it matters in a larger sense. So for example, you know, a lot of people are drawn into art because they'll see these headlines of like the Da Vinci that made 450 million last yeah, year. Yeah, or like that Banksy and the year piece the, or whatever. The Basquiat, yeah, that made, or, and the Banksy that shredded, perfect, shredded, exactly, yeah. yeah, perfect example. Hit a million dollars, shred at the, like that's, you know, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other story. But, <laughs> um, and then, you know, I think something that Chelsea and I just really recently learned was we um, we were in Paris for an, another art fair, because that's all we do, is mm -hmm. called FIAC, and we got to go to the Louvre, and we were speaking with a curator there, and we were in front of the Mona Lisa. And, of course, it was closed this day, so there was no one around. So we got to get, like, not up close and personal, but we were close, and we got to spend a lot of time with the work. And what we didn't necessarily understand was the amount of commerce it brings to Paris as a city. The people, just the Mona Lisa. Just the just Mona Lisa. the Mona Lisa. The amount of people that buy magnets in the gift shop to the amount of people that stay an extra night and pay for their hotels, mm -hmm, pay mm -hmm. for their extra dinner and breakfast, you know, pay for the extra rental car, whatever it might be. The amount of commerce it brings, the amount of view, like people it brings yeah. to the museum is like unfathomable, which is why it makes perfect sense why the other piece sold for $450 you know, million. This is interesting. And I mean, just something that popped into my head and perhaps it's something we can discuss here is a lot of our listeners are more of the business-minded people, founders, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, or whatever. How can they, I guess, infuse art? And like the thing you talk about, the Mona Lisa, like that one artwork right. brings in that much commerce. Like how can art play a role in business? Just kind of like how social entrepreneurship now is like this buzzword, like everybody's you know thinking about starting a company that already is for social good. How can one also infuse art somehow into that? Right. Well, there are a lot of banks that are opening up their art advisory sector within, you know, that has a, a you know, they're much more about investing in art, mm -hmm. which is, you know, something that we understand in that the artwork that we're selling is either museum artists or, you know, right before they become museum artists. So we understand, you know, that there are artists that are obtainable right now and they won't be in five years. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, you can buy it for 50,000 right now and in five years, it's 5 million. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean. But our clients aren't selling. We hope they're not selling. If they need to sell, they sell it back through the galleries mm -hmm. or wherever they bought it from. Mm -hmm. But it's the opportunity to buy it at that 
beginning price point, and those are numbers that everyone can understand. Um, I'm, I want to see, I'm interested, what is your favorite piece of art, and why does that matter to you? And we'll start off with uh, Chelsea. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my favorite piece of art, that's a big one. There's a lot of pieces out there. Uh, well, I really like Kusama. I think that she's fantastic, everything that she makes. I think that she's very, very, very important to um, our culture right now. And I think that she's really responsible for how many people are interested in art today because of the Instagram and her uh, immersive experiences that you can do at the Broad or, um, you know, at any number of museums all over the world. So I think my favorite piece of artwork from her would just be a very plain infinity nut because it's really representative of her entire practice and it's why she is where she is today. And where can people find that? Like, where is that? Is that online or is it like at one of the, it's just, it's like she just takes it from place series. to place. It's yeah. like a series. Oh, so see, she's see, done see. like hundreds of these. They're, they're usually like tone on tone mm -hmm. and it kind of looks like a net and sh it's just Got one it. Got it. painting and then she does a very repetitive thing. And the reason why she does this repetitive thing is because she's mentally ill. She mm -hmm. currently lives in a mental institution wow. and she still goes to her studio every single day and she still paints the same thing every single day. Wow. And yeah, that just speaks to her dedication. Mm -hmm. and, and Rachel, what about you? Oh, God. Still thinking about it? <laughs> I am. I might need to come back to this one. But, because I had one, but it's so typical. Or just <laughs> even or just even one that's, like, impacted you. Like, it doesn't have to be your favorite piece of art, but, like, one that okay. has an impact on like, you. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be French. It's going to be 19th century. Um, <laughs> so, um, when I studied in school, obviously, you have a PowerPoint, and you see how these paintings are and you for some reason even still today like don't can't properly visualize how big or small something is even though we know the size but um so I saw these small paintings one of them was 18th century Jacques-Louis David large paintings and we, they didn't explain how large they were necessarily but then fast forward was um Gustave Courbet who I mentioned and I really like his artwork because he in an act of defiance you know, really blended genres. So for example, he painted really large scale works, which I didn't know were as big as they were until I saw them in person. And they're insane. They're the size of this wall if there was no door. And Sorry. this wall is like, what? This wall is massive. Like yeah. 10, 10 by 10. I mean, they're more. even bigger than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but he was putting, you know, the working class on that large of a, you know, screen, which you're not meant to do back then. That size was reserved solely for history, you know, portraits of royalty, even history paintings or biblical paintings depicting very, very important scenes and he was putting the working class there because there was so much tension politically at the time where the working class wasn't getting what they deserved, for example. So I'm going to put Gustave Courbet as Love it. What is kind of like the art industry as a whole like and, and where do you see it going both like economically and just like artistically? As a whole where it's going. I mean there has definitely been more of um, digital art coming to light which you know is something that everyone's still you know figuring out in their own right. I think that um, wait, I'm so sorry what was the question again? Just the second part. Yeah, no, I was just wondering, like, you know, where it's going. Because obviously there's, like, the, the artistic part of it, which is, like, the actual art. And then there's, like, the economic side of it of, like, the value of art. Okay. Right? So Got that's it. what I was just wondering. Yeah. Um, 
So in terms of the economic side, I think that there are a lot more people that are becoming involved in purchasing art. You know, I think that, like we mentioned, these record-breaking auction sales that are drawing in more people. And I think that there's a it, it's an interesting point right now with auction houses because that's not necessarily sustainable. You can't top $450 million every major auction season. Like, that would just, you know, not happen. And I know that they're segueing a lot into private sales, and I think that, which is, you know, what we do. And I think that, you know, that's the future. I think there are definite outlets. For example, there's... Artsy, which is a website, artsy.net, mm-hmm. and we use them. We have a profile on there. We're a gallery space on there, technically. And we, um, you know, that's a, an easy way for people to shop. So, for example, you can narrow it down by the price point, by the color scheme, by the theme. I'm, you can narrow it down by mm-hmm. so many different mm-hmm. things. So, it becomes a much more accessible thing for a larger audience. So, people can like sit in bed and scroll and, you know, choose something. Yeah. And it's, making it much easier for people to buy without seeing, which is also something that I think society is becoming much more, you know, comfortable doing. Yeah. And, 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 um, I guess Chelsea, did you want to add anything to that or? No, I think that Rachel really hit it on the head. Um, with, in addition, with the internet, more people are becoming interested in art and Mm -hmm. because more people are interested in art, there's more of a demand. And since there's more of a demand, artists aren't necessarily producing more. So it's giving a lot more artists a platform to become successful than ever happened before. Yeah. Because we just need more artwork. So it's really good for everybody. Yeah. Um, but, and so like, I'm, I'm curious, like, so uh, art in general, like, you know, art that's maybe like 100 or 200 years old, like, um, obviously comes with a high price tag. Um, and I'm sure like the, uh, like, the the um the year that it was like done in like ha- matters too as far as like the value but also like who the artist was and what was going on at the time and all that stuff and how much it's probably been purchased and the price tag but from now into the future and like artists that are creating art today like do you see the that art coming with the same price tag like soon or is it oh. like how does that work you know it's like I'm just trying to curious about the economics and how today's art especially digital art is gonna play into that. Funnily enough, contemporary art is much more expensive than the old art, by far. Contemporary art is on fire right now, and it's not going to stop. Yeah, with the exception of the Da Vinci and, like, Picasso. And, you know, because what happens is back then, there was much less accessible. So that artist died 100 years ago. He's mm-hmm. not producing any more art. Jeff Koons is producing a lot of art every year. Um, but, yeah, Chelsea's completely right. Like, the post-war contemporary sales in the auction houses are record, like mind boggling, just mm-hmm. how much each lot goes for. And those artists are still living. Mm-hmm. And of course they don't have any cut of yeah. what that goes for, yeah. but yeah. it, you know, furthers their market within their galleries. But art, contemporary art is insane. It's doing like, we sell contemporary art. That's where the money is. That's where mm-hmm. they're, that's where the demand is. That's where it's. So yeah, no, it's first like, you know, Picasso wasn't necessarily, I mean, maybe multi-million dollar works at one time. Yeah, like Picasso, he made thousands and thousands of artworks, but uh, they weren't selling for what art is selling. Like right now, you contemporary would... art sells for way more. It's crazy. It's really crazy. And do you think that's just because like the culture has made that so, or like visibility? Like, I mean, obviously Instagram, you can see the same thing over and over again, and yeah. you know, it creates some sort of value. I'm sure. But like, why do you think that is? I think that. The reason it's happening is because contemporary art has a lot more of a story behind it, whereas the older art, what you see is what you get. And contemporary art, you really need to spend time thinking about what the artist was thinking about, what was going on, and 
why it came to be. Yeah. Also think like, uh, you know, like older art, like, you know, it's kind of like up to your kind of like what you draw from it. Like, you know, the story that you see through that art as opposed to what me, what the intention was of the artist who actually painted it. Right. Right. Well, like Chelsea said earlier, you know, those artworks were commissioned and they were a part of history. They were depicting history yeah. as per who commissioned it. So right, right, right. come the 20th century, there was a radical shift. Like mm-hmm. Picasso started making these abstracted versions of portraits that no one had ever seen before mm-hmm. and that were so, you know, fought against for the first portion of his career. And obviously now he's the most you know, successful artists of that century. But um, no, I think that right now it is the Instagram fad. It is, you know, that Kusama has shows all around the world all the time. So people, there's such a high demand for her work. And I think that, um, you know, people are buying, it's really recognizable. Everyone knows who Jeff Koons is. Everyone Mm -hmm. knows what Damien Hirst's work looks like or Kusama's, you know, because that's what you're seeing everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. So I was watching this like, segment of Ellen DeGeneres months ago with her wife, uh, Portia de Rossi, yeah. who has her like own company. I can't remember the name of the company, but they basically like repurpose this, like just like expensive art so that it's more commercial. It's more, I guess, democratized, commercialized, whatever the word is. What do you think about those types of like, you know, art tech companies that are, you know, coming into the picture and taking what is a very expensive, exclusive artwork and then producing multiple versions of it? Is that something that hurts you know, I don't want to say hurts your business, but is that something that hurts the art industry or is it just a way to introduce more people to art earlier on at a lower price point and then yeah. get them to become more of the fine art, you know, lovers? Yes. Maybe the second one. Yeah. I think the first one, because the people that are buying a real Monet aren't buying a reproduced right, Monet. Right. And the more reproduced Monets there are, the more valuable it'll make the original. Yeah. Really? So it actually <laughs> helps. Yeah. So it's like different than other inter- industries where like if you... You make the fake version of it like decreases the value. Yeah, no, it's it's right. it's definitely different and because right. there's only one. Where if it's sneakers, there's mm-hmm. thousands of real sneakers, but there's mm-hmm. only one mm-hmm. real painting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, how, how do you see? Like you know, if you look back hundred years, you know, obviously the art industry was different. You know, what is your prediction, individual predictions on where it will be? Like even beyond our lifetime, where will art be at right. that point? I think people continue to spend a lot more money on art. I think that's where it's going. There's no doubt. People are already spending a lot of money on art. The auction prices in the past 10 years even have, well, there was a reset, obviously, in 2007-8. But when there is just continuing to grow, I think people are really understanding the value and they're really wanting to, you know, get these works, make them theirs mm-hmm. and put money into art. And they're they're understanding that acquired taste mm-hmm. is coming to mm-hmm. fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be a even bigger leading industry. I think that... Um, and you were sort of talking about the mix between um, tech and art. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also a huge, I mean, we know of these funds, for example, mm-hmm. where investors are putting in money and they're purchasing artworks as a fund. And then they they each get to live with the artwork for mm-hmm. however long or however the rules are set aside. And, you know, one person couldn't afford a $20 million Picasso, but if they're putting in 100000 <coughs> they get to live with it for a period of time. And I also think that's wonderful. That's pretty interesting. Because yeah. you're, you know... You get to have that work in your home. Yeah. And it's like shared art. Yeah. I mean, there are different like levels of, yeah. or, you know, details within these funds. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're putting together money hmm. to buy something that otherwise one person couldn't afford. So, or one person in that group. Interesting. Interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. Well, 
we're very excited about the future of not only Vernissage, but also the industry and how you guys grow with it. And obviously, we want to thank you guys both so much for your time and your insight. Yeah. And I mean, I think I learned a lot because I'm not, I'm very removed from the art industry. Right. <laughs> and I think, again, like I mentioned, that, that, that was kind of like a more of a personal anecdote to the fact that as I grow older, as I experience more, art becomes something that, you know, helps me more so relax or view the world in a different perspective. That, you know, there is another side to life beyond just hard work and grinding and hustle. And it's more so just appreciate the finer things in life. Um, so, you know, I'm excited that there are folks like you that are out there promoting this type of culture and infusing art into society. And I think that there's definitely a very bright future for not only Vernissage, but, you know, for you two being involved here and making a bigger name for yourselves in, in this industry. So we're excited to have had this conversation and I'm really looking forward to what becomes of Vernissage in the future. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you.